Well, good morning. Um, let me just do a little bit, a little reminder about our gathering tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, one, it is really important for us as a church family to begin this year in prayer. If you've ever had a sense that a year needed prayer, this is probably one of them. And uh, it's, it's really important. At the close of that time this evening, uh, we will have a members-only prayer time that involves prayer for the rescue of one of our members who's fallen deeply into sin and refuses to turn from it. So uh, it's an important time, and I, I hope you can join us. Um, and if you're not able to, that you would set aside a bit of time, perhaps at home, to pray along with us. So it has been, in many ways, a hard season for the church, not just our church, but the church. Uh, Carson uh, presented that really beautifully last week, made that point skillfully for us. But let me ask you to consider this study from across our brothers and sisters across the pond. Um, in 2019, there was a poll of 2,000 Britons on what the perfect Sunday involved. And this is what they said. Waking at 8.30 a.m. to the smell of breakfast cooking, a cuddle, and three hours of television. A quarter of Brits thought an ideal weekend morning starts with a full English breakfast in bed, and a third wanted to start their Sunday morning with a cup of tea or coffee before pottering around the house for an hour. The perfect roast is said to be served at 3.15 p.m. with ideally four other people. Other activities Brits enjoy on Sunday include reading a book, listening to music, and doing some gardening. Nearly one in ten said they spend their Sunday afternoon at the pub while one in seven think Sundays are made for doing food shopping to keep the cupboard stocked for the rest of the week. Attending church did not appear in the poll. And that was from 2019. That was before the pandemic. Uh, it's not just an issue for the Brits. Um, there's, a, there's a Barna study in, of the United States that says in the last 10 years, practicing Christians are 10 years, or 10 percent, excuse me, in the last 10 years, practicing Christians in the United States are down 20 percent. That's this top red line, and you can see what it does starting in about 2010 until now. 20 percent less practicing Christians in the United States. At the same time, non-practicing Christians, which I'm, I'm trying to, is that even a thing? Can you even be a non-practicing Christian? But evidently, uh, for survey's sake, it is. And that's, that's um, this blue line. And you can see it jumps up. Uh, and it jumps up 10 per, more than 10% in the last 10 years. And uh, my brothers and my sisters, this is the cultural air we breathe. Okay. This is the cultural water we swim in every day. And it is pressing us to devalue the church, the church that Jesus loved so much that he would die and give his life's blood to buy her. So our elders, in light of these things, I have set a priority focus for 2022 that reads like this. We, 2022 is the year where we want to strengthen our love and commitment to our local church as an expression of our love for Christ. In a word, 2022 is the year of treasuring church. Okay. 
We want to grow in our love for Christ and show it by the way we love his people. And toward that end, today we'll begin a study in the book of Titus, as Daniel mentioned. And so if you want to find your way there on your phones or in your Bibles, um, that's where we'll be this morning. I'd like to pray for us again. Father, be kind to us now. And as we open your word, may you open our hearts and minds to truly receive it with gladness, eagerness, willingness, thankfulness, all all these things. Press them deeply in us, Lord, as we receive it even now. We ask this, Christ, in your name. Amen. So imagine that you ran across a letter and it went like this. Dear Nikki, thanks so much for your letter and pictures. The, the um, Fords of Baruna look fine. Isn't Matthew's I don't know what really the white witch and the stone tablet? I shouldn't like to meet his whale in real life. Love to all. What is that about? I mean, does that even make any sense as you hear that read? Who, who, are, who is... Who's writing this? Who are they writing to? What, what do these details mean? What's the reference to a white witch? What, uh, without some awareness of answers to those kinds of questions, you have no idea what, what that even means. Now let me show you the actual letter. It's going to be a little small, but there's some things that you can pick out that may help you make sense out of it. One's the date. It's 1954. The place, it's written from Oxford. It's written to someone named Nikki, and it's signed by a guy named C.S. Lewis. Now, some of you are starting to connect some dots. You know an author, a British author from the 1950s named C.S. Lewis. He wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia, and prominent in there are places like the Fords of Baruna and the White Witch, the Stone Tablet, or the Stone Table, rather. Um, And so you're beginning to put it together. If you knew even more that this was from a collection of letters that C.S. Lewis wrote to children, you'd be able to realize that Nikki evidently sent him a letter with pictures of the Chronicles of Narnia in it, and he's replying to her. Um, Every letter has a setting, right? People, places, times, circumstances, They color and constrain and illumine the meaning of the words that are written. No different with the letter that we find in the New Testament that's titled simply Titus. The book of Titus is a letter. It's a personal correspondence between two people. And we meet those two people in the very first verses of the letter. It starts this way, Paul a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you drop down to verse 4, you see who he's writing to. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. So the sender of our letter that we're going to study together over the next seven weeks is a man named Paul, and the recipient is a man named Titus. And a good place to start our conversation this morning in making sense out of this letter is simply to answer the question, who are these people whose mail we are reading? Okay. And if you were to go um, and just glance at uh, Wikipedia, 
under the Apostle Paul. By the way, Wikipedia is a very dangerous place normally to get theological information. <laughs> All right? I just want to say, uh, you don't know who wrote it, and uh, they're, not always, they're not always spot on in what they're writing. But we can, you could get some helpful information about the Apostle Paul, similar to what Daniel shared earlier. Paul, who was born the Saul of, as Saul of Tarsus, He's commonly known as Paul the Apostle and St. Paul. He was a Christian apostle, though not one of the 12 apostles, who spread the teachings of Jesus in the first century world, generally regarded as one of the most important figures of the apostolic age. He founded several Christian communities in Asia Minor and Europe uh, from the mid-30s to the mid-50s A.D. If you were to read on, you'd see that according to the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts of the Apostles, Paul was a Pharisee, a strict Strictly observant Jew, he participated in the persecution of the early disciples of Jesus. And in the narrative of Acts, Paul was traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus on a mission to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. When the risen Christ appeared to him in a great bright light, he was struck blind, but after three days his sight was restored by Ananias of Damascus. And Paul began to preach that Jesus of Nazareth was the Jewish Messiah and the Son of God. About half of the book of Acts deals with Paul's life and works, and as many as 14 of the 27 books in the New Testament have traditionally been attributed to Paul. He's been called by some the greatest Christian missionary and theologian to have ever lived. So this is the man who stands behind those brief little words in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ in the fullest sense. By virtue of a special revelation and a visionary encounter with the risen Christ, Paul is an apostle. He's an eyewitness of Christ and his, uh, his work. But he's, he's also one sent out by Christ to all the non-Jewish peoples of the world. So Paul is an apostle. He writes as an apostle, with great authority as an apostle. He's also, though, a servant, it says there, a servant of God. As one writer put it, with Paul's opening words, he confirms his endorsement of Jesus' leadership philosophy, servant leadership of the foot-washing kind. So this is the author of our letter, briefly, the great apostle Paul, a humble servant of God. And he's writing to someone named Titus. Verse 4 to Titus, Paul's true child in a common faith. Okay, so Titus is a believer, like perhaps led to faith by Paul, definitely mentored by Paul in the faith. And we know much, much less about Titus than we do about Paul, but his name does show up in the New Testament some 13 times. Um, and if you put those puzzle pieces together, you'll find something like this description that comes from Christian History Magazine. Um, Titus probably gets the Pauline Service Award with 20 years as Paul's co-worker. So Titus worked with Paul for 20 years. Titus was born a Gentile. When he became a Christian, he was not circumcised. Kids, you can ask your parents about that when you get home. When you're welcome, parents. When Titus accompanied Paul on a visit to Jerusalem, 
some Jewish Christians insisted Paul's companion Titus be circumcised according to Jewish law. And as Paul put it, he did not yield in submission even for a moment. And Titus remained uncircumcised. So Titus thus served as a powerful symbol of justification by grace, not by law. Titus served with Paul during his extended stay in Ephesus as a partner and fellow worker. And from there, Titus tackled his toughest assignment to combat grave immorality in the Corinthian church. So he's, he's been with Paul in Ephesus, and now he's, he's, he's assigned to Corinth, where he battles immorality in that church and mediates their reconciliation with Paul. Titus put his pastoral skills to work and reported back to a nervously awaiting Paul that Paul's severe third Corinthian letter, which we don't have, we only have two of them, had led to the repentance of the Corinthian church. Now, Titus was later assigned by Paul to the troubled, another troubled church at Crete. Ancient historian Eusebius reports that Titus would eventually die there on Crete in the year 96 and was buried in the ancient capital of Gortnia. Or Gortina, rather. Now, those are some pretty tough assignments. Crete and Corinth, right, to give to one of your mentees. And that has led uh, Danny Aiken to describe Titus this way. He says, playfully, we can say Titus was Paul's hitman, his green beret, his spiritual Navy SEAL who could go into hard places and set things in order, get things fixed, and make things right. So, so we know that this Titus who's receiving the letter that we're reading had a long history of ser faithful service with Paul and Paul trusted him with truly difficult assignments, um, including the one that would prompt the writing of the letter that we're going to read together in the coming weeks called Titus. Okay. Now, we learn from the contents of the letter and some other indicators in the New Testament that Titus had been left behind by Paul on an island called Crete to help establish leaders and order amongst the church there, health amongst the church there. So, here's where Crete is. Um, you can see it right here. It's a large island. Um, and you see some other uh, names of New Testament churches there. Colossae, if you Crete is down here, a large island um, south of Greece and southwest of modern-day Turkey, where the Coes were that you just saw on the screen. And this was a tough, tough lot for Titus to be assigned to minister to. In just a couple weeks, we're going to read this description and go dig into it deeper of the people of the island of Crete. In verse 12 of the first chapter, Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Their own, their own poet said that about them. <clears throat> this testimony, Paul says, is true. Therefore, Titus rebuked them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, he says, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any 
good work. Paul, just tell us what you really think about the people that you're sending Titus to, right? Professor Chris Rapazzini adds these helpful thoughts. He says, Crete was renowned for two things. First, they openly refer to themselves as liars. Second, the island was believed to be the birthplace of the Greek god Zeus, who was known for seducing women all throughout Greek mythology and lying about it to his wife. Paul wastes no time in drawing a contrast between a world of false gods and lies that the Cretans are accustomed to and the one true God who never lies and is always faithful. We'll see that in verse 2. How can you help your church overcome the lies of this world with the truths of God's word, Paul is saying to Titus. But you know, Crete, if those things are true, doesn't sound all that much different from where we live. I mean, except for the Zeus part, right? We live in a time, a friend of mine says, is characterized by epistemological anarchy. And by that he means it's hard to know what is real and true. I mean, what's fake news? What's true news? Truth is hard to come by in Crete and on the internet. And as Cretans were, we too are drowning in sexuality of every shape and sort. Surely, if we move to ancient Crete, we might feel right at home. And the flow in both settings, then and now, is against your faith. There's another study. This one was by the Pew Institute, and you will not be able to see this very well. But what I want you to notice is this chart is in decline, and this one is increasing. Let me tell you what they mean. The first one, the top one, is United States adults who identify as Christians. And over a 12-year period from 2007 to 2019, um, adults in the United States who identify as Christian decreased from 77% to 65%. Now the bottom one are those who are religiously unaffiliated. They're commonly referred to as the nuns. And no, not not like N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. They have no affiliation. And those people have increased from 16% in 2007 to 26% in 2019. And Professor Rapazzini's last sentence helps us see why Paul is writing to Titus and to us. How can you help your church overcome the lies of this world with the truths of God's word? Clearly the churches in Crete and in Wake Forest are going to need strong, faithful leaders and clear, true scriptural teaching in order to stand strong and flourish on their island and in our community. And so in the opening verses of the chapter, we'll only look at the first four verses today in addition to this introduction, but Paul lays out here his purpose for writing Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promises before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. 
So Paul is writing to Titus, but he's writing for the church, right? So that Titus could strengthen the church. For, he calls them the elect. The idea that they are the ones chosen by God to belong to him and to be his people. And Paul has in mind here, he lays them out for us, several targets in his letter, purposes for his writing. That they're targets not only for the church in Crete, but for the church throughout history, all the way down to us, that has read this letter while kind of looking over Titus' shoulder for centuries now. So these bullseyes Paul is setting, they're, they're on us too. Okay? And so he says, I'm writing to strengthen the faith of those who follow Christ in this world. Right? The, he calls them the elect, the ones chosen by God to be his people. He does this as we have seen amidst a setting that is not conducive to faith. It's a faith-hostile culture. And engaging in the study of Titus, if you'll join us, really seriously join us in the study of Titus, um, it'll have that effect on you. Your faith will be strengthened if you engage in this study, even amidst the culture in which you live. Paul then says he's, he's writing to increase their knowledge of a truth of the truth in a way that makes them more godly, right? Paul is not um, simply trying to increase our knowledge, though Titus contains important teachings that you must know if you're gonna live a life that's more pleasing to God, godly, right? Paul is not just after that knowledge, though. He's after that knowledge that leads to an increase in godliness, you know, one of the most sorrowful cases of non-transformational knowledge of the Bible that I've ever run across uh, was told by author Leonard Sweet. Some of you may recall it. It's about the Prince of Granada. He's an heir to the Spanish crown. He was sentenced to life in solitary confinement in Madrid's ancient prison. The dreadful, dirty, and dreary nature of that prison earned it the name, The Place of the Skull. Everyone knew that once you were in, you would never come out alive. The prince was given one book to read the entire time of his incarceration, and that was the Bible. With only one book to read, he read it hundreds and hundreds of times. The book became his constant companion, and after 33 years of imprisonment, he died. And when they came to clean out his cell, they found some notes he had written using nails to mark the soft stone of the prison walls. The notations were of this sort. Psalm 118.8 is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. And then Sweet writes, this individual spent 33 years of his life studying what some have described as the greatest book of all time, yet he could glean only trivia. For all we know, he never made any religious or spiritual commitment to Christ. He simply became an expert at Bible trivia. Okay. This is not what Paul is after when he wants us to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures. He wants us to gain, gain knowledge that transforms us. He is imparting knowledge that is essential to godliness, though. There are truths you must know from the book of Titus if you want to become more like Christ. 
So here's, here's a reflection question for you. Are you regularly engaging the Bible in a way that changes you? That affects what you believe more than your politics does? More than the way you were raised? That reveals sin patterns in your life regularly and helps you be increasingly free of them? Is that how you read the Bible? That's what Paul has in mind. That's why he's writing this letter to Titus, to help the church in Crete and the church in Wake Forest live more godly, Christ-like lives amidst a culture where it will be difficult. But it's also desperately needed. You know, we live in a culture where deconstructing your faith is viewed as a noble thing, a true-to-self kind of authentic thing. Author Tish Warren writes that uh, Josh Harris of I Kissed Dating Goodbye fame recently received jeers from across the theological spectrum for his $275 course on deconstruction, which he later canceled to his credit. But the ph phenomenon, she says, isn't limited to him. A month ago, I was greeted by a Facebook ad for a deconstruction coach. There is it now, she says, an industry dedicated to monetizing deconstruction. That is what deconstructing your faith is. It's code for, as Peter puts it, denying the one who bought you and that with his precious life's blood. It is tragic and sorrowful. The spurning of the sacrificial love of God is hardly a good and noble thing. So we need to know the truths of Scripture, particularly Titus, so that it changes us. It ups our godliness quotient. This is what Titus can do for us. It must do this for us, right? And the last bullseye that he has as he writes the letter, he says he wants to strengthen our hope in eternal life. Look again, verses 2 and 3. The hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Strengthen our hope in eternal life. So just yesterday, I stood right here and helped perform a funeral for Tammy Petway, a North Waker whose life was taken uh, by covid um, and then as part of the service, as we often do, the mic was open and people were allowed to share memories of Tammy. And uh, you know, one after another, after another, after another, I'm not sure, we were, I thought we were never going to get out of here. Uh, they just kept coming and they would testify to the surety of her faith and the surety that they had in the promise of Christ that she was in heaven. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, graveside is not a place for guesswork about eternal life. 
Paul wants the church back then and right now to have supreme confidence in this hope of life eternal. And so he paints this vivid contrast to the lying Cretan culture and their deceptive gods. And he says, the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Right? This God never lies, Paul says. And this one true God's promises always come true. They always come true. And so... When we get the background information on a letter, like the one we saw from C.S. Lewis, right? The letters start to make better sense to us. We read them differently with, with different insights. Much more insight. And so now we have a bit of background on Paul's letter to Titus. And so what I'd like to do with the rest of our time, the, the next eight minutes or so of our time, I'd like for us to listen to the book of Titus read for us. All of it. Okay, now relax. There's only three short chapters in the book of Titus. But uh, as you hear it read aloud for us, um, I'd like you to do two things while it's being read. Um, First, use this as a time to kind of pre-decide to say yes to all that God has for you in the book of Titus. Yes to faithful hearing of the book of Titus. That means showing up here on Sundays, every Sunday that you can, to sit under the teaching of this letter. And if you can't, you'll grab it online. Our, Our guys work really hard to make this available online in case you cannot be here. Maybe you'll even read it before you show up. I mean, the passage for for next week is five verses. Read it before you show up. Maybe read it again after you've heard it taught. Maybe you'll even take notes, at least mental ones, and you'll have a discussion about it at home or with your small group. Whatever faithful hearing of the word means, I want to challenge you to say yes to it today as you listen to it read to us. Yes to faithful hearing. I would say yes to faithful responding is part of that. You're saying yes, I will apply what this book says to me. When I'm convicted of sin that doesn't align well in my life at one point or another with Paul's letter, I'll repent and make adjustments. It'll have its full effect. It'll make me more godly. You're saying yes to that. You're not just going to come and listen and hope there's good stories, maybe a video, but you're listening for life change. Say yes to faithful hearing and faithful responding to this letter you're about to read. And the, the second thing is, as you listen to it read this morning, listen for God to be speaking to you even now at first hearing. You may hear something and God is going to say, That's about your life right now. We need to talk. (laughs) He may be saying that to you. He may say, this is for your life right now. I want to talk. I want to bring encouragement and hope to you in this area. So in the next eight minutes, as this book is read to us and for us, let me invite you, prayerfully listen. Put your yes on the table 
and listen for what God is saying to you even now. So let's pray, and then Rod's gonna come and read for us. So let's pray together. Lord, we open our ears, our minds, our hearts, our lives now to the reading of your word. May your spirit apply it with all the hope that is intended and all the freedom that it's intended to bring. We trust you for this and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord, the book of Titus. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in common faith, grace, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, 
Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis of Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all.